Well, I want to encourage you to turn to Hebrews chapter 13, and we're going to look at verse 7 and verse 17 today. So just two verses, they're related. Let's stand as we read God's word together. Hebrews 13, 7, to start, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. And then down at verse 17, obey those who rule over you, be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word today, help us to have ears ready to listen, minds ready to think through what you have to say to us, and and Lord, feet ready to put this into application in our lives. Lord, we thank you for your word and for how it touches every aspect of our life, including difficult ones, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is... uh, It's often a dangerous proposition, I think, for a church leader to preach on a topic that is about submission to the authority of church leadership. Last time I spoke on this was five years ago, and probably some of you blanked it out of your mind, but here it is again. We are in Hebrews 13, and it mentions it twice, and so it would be wrong for me to skip over this part just because it's uncomfortable at times. And inevitably, you know, some Some will think there's an ulterior motive in bringing this topic up, whether it's to exhort those of you who haven't joined the church yet to join the church or to speak into the lives of those who may be skeptical or resistant towards church leadership or even to lay a foundation for when we make decisions down the road a few months or or years, and I'll point back to this sermon, right, on August 22nd, 2021, and say, well, don't forget, you need to submit. So that, that's sometimes the, the temptation to think this is why there's an ulterior motive here. But I want to lay that all out on the table and realize that I recognize that and promise you the sole motive in covering this topic is Hebrews talks about it. And it's important to the author of Hebrews because it's mentioned in verse 7 and it's mentioned in verse 17. But this passage is for both congregants and church leaders. And I'll, I'll explain why that is in just a moment. Um, in fact, let's talk about church leaders first. They need to read this passage and remember why they're in leadership and to fight the temptation to misuse that authority. And congregant members need to fight the temptation to resist and suspect their leaders. Somehow, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and with our minds and our hearts fixed upon the same goal, which is the maturity of this local body, right? That's what our goal is together. We will and need to be able to talk through sensitive topics like this and hear what the Lord has to say about the right balance. In the past, I've defined love as is not just the sacrifice of ourselves for others, but rather the sacrifice of ourselves with a goal in mind, with an intentionality behind it of bettering and sanctifying other people. In other words, love has a purpose, and it has a direction in which it is going, and that includes the desire that others should mature in Christ to the glory of God. And as as love seeks the betterment of other people, it suffers long, 
it's humble, it's not envious of others, and so on. And in fact, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, everything else in the Christian life that we might prize, whether it's the exercising of the miraculous gifts, or possessing all knowledge, or being the most generous of all people, or even sacrificing ourselves in martyrdom, none of that matters if it isn't motivated by this biblical form of love. Now, the world is a lot different when it comes to love. The world idolizes the individual, and so it prizes love and protection of the self. Every new generation of Americans has perceived itself as is creating its own culture, its own traditions, its own opportunities. And we're taught from birth that we are obligated foremost to maximize this life, our life, our liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, particularly as the world defines those. And so among our our various relationships, the world tells us choose to start or to end or to further relationships if doing that will add to our personal and practical advantage because we always retain the veto power over everything. And we're ultimately furthering ourselves. And, And so society says, you know that you... I know that you love me when you let me be myself. When you let me express myself or be the best person that I can be. And so what does that mean? Well, modern Americans, I think, tend to describe churches as loving when those churches make them feel welcomed and comfortable and definitely not feel judged. But is that really love? And last summer, we talked about what it means to live in fellowship with one another. Remember, we had a whole series about fellowship within the the body of Christ as we're united in love with one another. And I challenged us against thinking that our relationships are about how each person makes us feel. After all, think about where that perspective will end up, right? It If you love me by letting me be myself, if you love me by letting me express myself, then who's the real object of my affection? It's me. I'm the real object of my affection. I might claim to love you, but it's really the way you make me feel that I love. You make me feel accepted and smart and inspired and romantic and encouraged and special and hardworking and creative and empowered, you name it. In other words, it's not so much that I love you, but that I love that you make a lot of me. And you've often heard me say that we need to fight the temptation of consumerism. We really do. It's the, consumerism is, is the belief that everything, including our relationships, is a matter of choice that's made on the basis of how what we consume will benefit us. It really goes hand in hand with how the world defines love and defines relationships. A consumer maximizes their benefit by looking for sales, by shopping at the right times, by making deals. And when we approach love and relationships as consumers, friends, it's the more superficial traits that are always going to draw our attention. 
It's because as consumers, we rarely make decisions based upon deeper, unseen qualities. And when it comes to church, we'll come, we'll listen to the worship, we'll listen to the preaching, we'll look around at the other people, and we'll ask questions like, do they look like me? Will I be comfortable with them? Did the sermon hold my attention? Was the music selection good today? Was the liturgy dry and rote? And on the way home, we'll then offer an explanation and, and sometimes a criticism of, of everything that we experienced. You know, I like the music, except that one song. Or the preacher wasn't very practical or Christ-centered today. Or there wasn't enough food at the fellowship meal. Or enough variety. And we evaluate we go home evaluating the experience rather than our hearts. And we judge the church rather than letting God's word judge us. So I want you to, want you to think through that for a second and say, where do you, where do I, usually find ourselves falling in? Is it in one side or the other? And sadly, what's tragic is that Christians who come and go from churches are often simply imitating what the leaders themselves do. When I was younger and, and thinking about um, ministry of some kind, whatever that was going to mean, the example I had was of pastors who came for several years, never intending really to stay indefinitely, always keeping their eyes on and their ears open for the next better opportunity. And, all, and in all of that, the world at large looks at the church and says, boy, it looks just like a, a business, a corporation. It looks like the rest of life. Everybody always looking out for what's most beneficial to themselves or what's, uh, how they're admired or how they're helped or benefited. And, and the leadership does the same exact thing. And what it needs to see is something that's different than the world. It needs to see that Christian commitments are different than what the world experiences and values. Otherwise, why would a non-Christian bother with the church? Unless he's entertained and it's somehow cool to go to church on Sundays, especially if his friends all come together on the same day. I mean, why would a non-Christian one to come to church. God calls us to something better and higher. He doesn't want us to be consumers, and he doesn't want us to just ask questions like, does it work? Because when we base the relevance of the church on things like, will that sermon or counsel actually change my spouse? Notice I said my spouse. Is that sermon applicable to my relationships at work? It's far easy, uh, too easy to approach worship with an I can take it or leave it attitude, or at least the attitude of I'll participate and listen if you offer me something practical that has the promise of relevance to me. Really seems to fit my life and my situation. And friends, I'm saying these things because we're all tempted by those types of thoughts. We're tempted to sit back. We're tempted to keep ourselves at a distance and just let the preached word sound like a speech given at a distance, you know, uh, like Charlie Brown's teacher, right? Wow, 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 wow. 
And that's sometimes what it sounds like when you're sleeping during the middle of the sermon. (laughs) It doesn't help that we live daily in a world that insists on tolerance of everything and anything. And when it comes to the mainstream church, pick a doctrinal topic, right? And, And you can find at least three different opinions and usually more on most things. And all of that can make us cynical can make us cynical, or at least have the attitude of where and when I go to church is about what I want in any given moment. So in the face of all that, the Bible tells us to seek and rejoice in truth, in truth. And when we hear a sermon, we should be like the Berean, and examine the scriptures by what we have heard so that we can make whatever adjustments necessary to conform our lives to the unchanging, absolute standards and principles of God's word, knowing that that exposure is for our own good. Why talk about these attitudes, you may ask? It's because when we bring them to church... As a congregant, often what results is rejection of or resistance to authority because at the heart of individualism, at the heart of prizing myself, especially that kind of individualism that treats everything as a consumer transaction in which the benefit or the relevance of this to my needs and interests is an issue of of what I want and what I desire, what it does is it elevates my autonomy, which means my self-rule, my self-law, and it makes me say, I get to choose what is important on the basis of whether it's pleasant or practical. Now, most, most people recognize that there is a benefit to having someone in leadership. Someone has to make laws, someone has to teach the class, someone has to pay the bills. But with that said, authority is something, at least that most of us go through life thinking in in 90% of our life situations, authority is something that we, the governed, consent to, that we say yes to, that we approve. At worst, it's something that we feel forced to obey because we have to. Now, most people expect that if they give a leader the right to lead them, then they, the people, also have the right to take that back. Right? Isn't that what Governor Gavin Newsom is experiencing right now? He's experiencing the reality of our democratic system in which we live life primarily by that principle. We, the people, can always veto if we don't like what you tell us to do, or if necessary, if we lack the ability by ourselves to do it, then we can always quit and leave. And when it comes to the Christian life, and by extension the church, God is interested in a relationship with people, but he's interested in a relationship that's asymmetrical, which means it's not a this mutual relationship in which you get to veto God's authority and what he commands for you to do, and, and he doesn't have to 
Consider everything about you in terms of his decision for and plan for his created order. He is the king. He is the one who is to be worshipped. The wages of sin is death because sin offends his glorious, beautiful, holy, and resplendent majesty. And it's not because it breaks the rules that was laid down by some church legislature. The wages of sin is death because God's glory is weighty and it's infinite and we have sinned against it. And the wages of sin is death because God is worthy of all honor, worship, and praise and we've just brushed him off. Because we don't want to consent to his right to require us to give up the things that we want. And so Jesus told the disciples, count the cost. Count the cost, because there is a cost. He asked the disciples often, do you truly love me? If you do, then you will obey me. And here's where all of this starts to come together and apply to Hebrews 13.7 and Hebrews 13.17. We need loving relationships and structures that move us towards the worship and honor and prizing of God's glory. You see, it's not about an elder or a deacon getting respect. It's about God being glorified. And we need churches to show us we really, really, in today's society, need churches that show us how independent, consumeristic, pragmatic, and anti-authority we've become. Churches where the self is not sovereign and where the worship of God is supreme. And so the author of Hebrews encourages Christians, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, and consider the outcome of their conduct. And then he goes on, obey those who rule over you, be submissive, for they watch out for your souls, as those who must give them account, give account, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And, and those two verses are short, but they're powerful. Leaders are said to watch over our souls for our profit. And to speak of souls is to speak of that part which is eternal. Our eternal good is at stake. That's what God is saying. Our eternal good is at stake. And what was this whole book of Hebrews about that we're about to finish? We've seen two major themes. The first has been the nature and glory of Christ as compared to every other thing that the Israelites treasured. He is greater than every hero of the faith, every priest, every angel. The second theme has been the exhortation to professing believers to endure, to be faithful, to persevere. And many of those who had joined the church were leaving because of persecution. And so that becomes the second great theme. And when the author says that leaders watch over the souls of the congregation, he's saying that leaders help in that lifelong battle against giving up. The job of the elders of this church and of any church is to help you persevere in faith 
and be found true to Jesus Christ at the final day. Martin Bootser was the pastor to Martin Luther. He once wrote, There is no authority or power in the church except that which is for our good. We gladly listen to the ministers of Christ. Why would he say that? We gladly listen to the ministers of Christ. He goes on, Because we Christians never completely die to ourselves. Did you... You get the, the emphasis there? It's not about, we gladly listen because they're like the voice of God. They speak with this, so articulate. They have so much education. This mellifluous voice, it just kind of rolls over us. It makes us feel so good. No, that's not what Martin Bootser said. He said, we listen because we never completely die to ourselves. But we still daily sin in many ways. Therefore, it's necessary to have in the church and congregation of Christ a constant teaching, discipline, and leading. That is a rule whereby Christians are continually prompted and led to learn to deny themselves more and abandon and dedicate themselves entirely to Christ the Lord as their head. You know what? The, I love that quote because it, doesn't, it means that the leaders don't have to be the best teachers, speakers, or anything, right? We, so often we evaluate people in the pulpit or people leading us by how they speak, how they teach, how much they know. But what this is telling me is that we should evaluate leaders based upon their own Christ-centeredness their own saturation in the word, and their own motivation to prompt us to die to ourselves. In Mark 13, 13, Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And that's the message of Hebrews. And as we read in Hebrews 10, 39, we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And so leaders are there, they're like that, guard on the road that are continually saying, don't stray from the path. Come on, keep going, keep it up. Listen again to Bootser. Our dear Lord Jesus is truly present in his church, ruling, leading, feeding it himself. It has pleased him to exercise his rule, protection, and care of us who are still in this world with and through the ministry of his word which he does outwardly and tangibly through his ministers and instruments. So that's another good point by Bootser, which is it's ultimately not us leading. If we are being Christ-centered, it is Christ leading through us, right? Through his ministers whom he calls and uses for that purpose, he calls all nations to reformation and declares to them forgiveness of sins, pardon for their sins, accepts them as his disciples to godly life, teaching them all their lives to long to keep everything that he's committed them. The Lord never commands or requires of us anything except that which is actually useful for our salvation. From the fact that he so solemnly commands and requires obedience to be offered to the ministers of his word. So he's talking about Hebrews 13 now. He will regard it a lack of obedience is nothing other than contempt for himself. 
So that's where it's starting to get a little stingy, you know, a little prickly, right? For Bootser to say that he will regard a resistance to a godly authority as nothing less than a contempt for himself. But think about the, how that conclusion got there. If it's truly Christ as the shepherd of this body who's working through his instruments, who's working through men that are called to serve him in a servant capacity, dying to themselves, pointing you to the right and straight and the narrow path, then really that is his authority working through them. And then he concludes, we are all too fond of ourselves and not able to recognize or judge our own deeds properly. Therefore, if we do not have a high and good opinion of those whom the Lord has placed over us, and who are to instruct, exhort, admonish, and correct us on his behalf, if we do not immediately receive their words and teaching with all fear and trembling as the Lord's words, then we will get nowhere and will not progress in the pursuit of godliness as is our current and daily experience. For there, where there is not regard and respect for leadership, we also see that there will be no true church growing in godliness. And that is bound to be the case because it is the Lord's will to govern his church through his ministers. So those are powerful, powerful words by Martin Bootser. And of course, that's 500 years ago, right? That's a long time ago that he was talking, but I think they're very relevant and powerful words for today. And I think he understood both the importance of the true calling of a church leader Namely, to watch over the souls of people as under-shepherds of Christ. And how do such men accomplish that calling? Well, verse 7 says, Remember those who rule over you who have spoken the word of God to you. So one of the key ways that church leaders watch over the souls of those in their care is to not speak their own word. That is really important for godly, Christ-centered leaders. They are not speaking their own word. They are speaking of someone else's authority, just like parents. You know, parents are going to be best in a godly home when they are not speaking just their own words, but when they are speaking the words of God. Same with leaders in the church. And if the great temptation of those suffering the persecution and trials of the world is, as Hebrews 2 warns, to drift away from God's word and what they've been told, then as I said, we need as leaders to keep helping people pay close attention to that word. In chapter 3 of Hebrews, you may remember that we read, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, fix your thoughts on Jesus. And if, as our morning passage says, people are to follow or imitate the faith of those who rule over them, doesn't that suggest that another requirement for godly leaders is that they actually have their eyes fixed on Jesus? They actually have to have a life that's worth following, worth imitating. That's why there are such high standards for leadership in the church. I remember vividly the first time I officially was presented before church as a candidate for a position as worship director. I had previously led some worship teams in Sacramento. 
But when our family moved to Amador County 27 years ago, I applied to a small foothills church. And it, and it seemed ill-fated at first because my experience, you know, it's in leading bands. But this new church wanted me to lead music with my hands. It wanted me to sing into a mic. It wanted me to lead and direct a choir. Those were all things I had never done. And so I went through the interview process, was recommended for hire, and, and the way that it worked in this particular church, which was in the Southern Baptist Convention, was that you came in view, what was called in view of a call, which means that it was kind of reverse of what you would expect, right? You're called, and then at that point, you're interviewed by the church. So it's like the, the church has this big burden put upon themselves, which is, We've already called this person. They're in view of a call, but now you've got to approve it, but we've got all the way to this process, and you need to say yes or no tonight. <laughs> Many of these folks who had never met me before. And so coming in view of a call that day meant that I needed to essentially show what I was going to do for the church that morning. And um, I arrived with... Well, I arrived kind of like I am right now, a shirt and a tie. And I knew I was in trouble because the pastor stopped me and he said, where's your suit jacket? And I said, it's at home. He said, go get it. I looked at my watch. It's 20 minutes to the start of the service. I lived 10 minutes away and my suit jacket was wrinkled in the corner of the closet. So I rushed into the car, you know, ran home got the jacket out, ironed the jacket, arrived 10 minutes late to the service time. That was not a good, st not a good start to be here in view of a call. Uh, so anyway, that, that then led to the evening service time in which they were asking me several questions, including one I will never forget. They said, you know, we read that your part, that you've got... Uh, this past experience. In fact, right now you're part of a traveling professional group. Does that mean that you play honky-tonk music? <laughs> well, afterwards, Wendy and I were taken upstairs, and uh, it was their fellowship room, and on the table uh, was a cake, and on the cake and icing was written, congratulations, Steve and Wendy. And we've told some of you, you folks before that, you know, they hadn't yet turned on the lights upstairs. It was still dark. This lady led us upstairs. She showed us the cake. And then she jokingly said, well, you know, if the vote is no, there is the side door exit. <laughs> so we, were, we sat up there for, four, was it 45 minutes or so? It was forever. Was it an hour and a half? Well, wow, it was long. We had no idea what could be taking so long. Uh, maybe it was my answer about honky-tonk music, but we were sure that, it was, that uh, it was such a long time that it suggested it was not a good, good time. And so we began to inch towards that side exit door in anticipation of a speedy departure. But we eventually were informed, you know, the vote was unanimous except for two negative votes. And... To their credit, the church wanted to wrestle through why the votes were no. And we soon learned that, that one of the dissenting votes came from a man that would become one of our best friends at the church. 
And I share this long story with you because I admired this man for what he did that evening. The church had not taken a long time to get to know me or my family. They had not evaluated my character or uh, anything by the principles of Scripture, but rather by the practical aspects of the church's need. Whether I knew music or not. Rather than judge my fitness to lead and protect the souls of the flock. They judged my competence by how well I was waving my hands and saying into a microphone, and they were desperate. Because clearly I had not done those things very well. And to his credit, this man voted no because of the more important things. He would later say, you know what? Kim and I, his name was Dan, Kim and I loved you guys from the beginning. From when we met you, we saw a friendly, what seemed to be a Christ-loving family. But you don't, just don't put likable people or successful people into leadership. You just don't put likable people or successful people into leadership. You put spiritually qualified people into leadership, even if it means you have to wait until those qualified people are available. And we didn't know. We didn't know whether you were spiritually qualified. And what I'm saying is, even as we look at Hebrews 13 and, and we recognize the burden that's put upon the congregant members to not resist godly authority, to, to submit to people who are speaking the word of God and watching out for our souls. There is an equal balance that there is this heavy burden and calling of men who must give account to the Lord that they led in a way that was themselves dying to themselves. And the leadership of the church must be vested in those types of people. Those who keep a sharp eye out for the predators that would come in and devour the sheep. Men of conviction and passion and godly temper for the things of the Lord. Men who are good leaders of their home and finances and personal affairs and, and blameless in their Integrity and reputation. Not men who are just successful in business or talented. So the leaders watch over the people's souls by speaking God's word, by living a model life in which it is evident that their eyes are fixed upon Jesus. That is verse 7. And then verse 17 goes back to the response of the congregation. Let them watch over your souls with joy and not with grief. On the one hand, this, this verse says one more thing about leaders, which is that they are to lead with joy. Right? And, of course, there's kind of that profound corollary to that, which is that a leader who doesn't exhibit a joyful life is often a leader who is not leading to the benefit of the people. But it's interesting that the author says, don't compromise their joy. Don't cause 
this very heavy and weighty leadership to be grieving to them. And the word obey in this passage is a broad word. It can mean be persuaded by, trust, rely upon. It's translated obey here because that's a natural response of an individual who is persuaded by, trusts, and relies upon the leadership. What does it mean for us? It means that in the ideal situation, leaders who meet the qualifications of biblical leadership, who are joyful in their service of Christ, who are guards upon the path, who are keeping you from being distracted, who are calling you to die to yourselves, who speak the word of God, whose eyes are fixed upon Jesus, these men are trusted by the people with the result that the congregation is disposed towards being obedient, towards being supportive, eager to follow, and desirous to imitate their faith. And when the congregation resists the authority of the leadership, it can lead to grief. Even as Paul would tell the Thessalonians, for what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account. Or John, who wrote, I have no greater joy than this than to hear of my children walking in truth. And then we contrast that with Paul's agonizing words to the Galatians in one, chapter 1 and saying, or even the Corinthians where he says, out of much affliction and anguish of my heart with many tears, I am writing this letter. You need only to read the interactions between Moses and God, right? Over the stiff-necked resistance of the Israelites to realize that a true leader is not concerned about his own welfare, but about the welfare of the people and God's glory. When Moses would bring the, the resistance of the people before the Lord, yes, sometimes there was a little bit of complaining, but as soon as God said, I'm going to strike them all dead, what does he say? No, it says he prostrated himself out before the Lord and said, no, Lord, protect your reputation. Don't, you know, let it be said that you brought this people and redeemed them up out of Egypt only to let them all die and be destroyed in the desert. Who is he talking about? He's not saying... Lord, if you do that, it'll make everything that I did seem like a waste of time, all that time that I've spent before the Pharaoh and all of the this trouble that I've endured. No, he was constantly thinking about God's glory and name and reputation. That is the joy that has the possibility of being compromised when there is resistance. because the leader knows that God's glory is being challenged and that the people are going to face the consequences of discipline. Now, some of you still may be wary. After all, church is messy. And we often don't have the ideal, including when it comes to leadership. And you may be saying, my experience in the past has been of abusive leaders, of leaders who it just doesn't quite sound like what you've been describing, of eyes fixed on Jesus, dying to themselves, not thinking about their own gain, etc. That's not been my experience. Well, in response, I would direct us all to two important things at the end here. First, remember what Paul told Titus in his letter to 
Titus. He says, I have sent you to Crete to finish the good work that was started by, what's the finishing of the work? By appointing elders in all the churches. So if one of the primary goals of the kingdom is to build the church, as Jesus said, I will build my church. And if the church is on display, as Ephesians talks about, before the seen and unseen principalities and powers of the created order, displaying the wisdom of God, if that's what the church is, and if an integral part of what it is to be the church is to have leadership so that Paul would say, it's not complete until this is done, then one strong reason to follow those who rule in the church is, again, not about the leadership, and not about authority, and I have to submit that, those kinds of questions, but about what, is, what are we communicating to the world? What is on display? This is about God. And second, if you go back to what I said a little bit ago about what it means to obey, you'll remember that this isn't a blind obedience. Nowhere are believers ever commanded to obey those who lead them against God's word. And I think Matthew Henry said it well. Christians must submit to be instructed by their ministers and not think themselves too wise, too good, or too great to learn from them. And when they find that ministerial instructions are agreeable to the written word, they must obey them. In other words, again, the point that goes back to the very beginning of this afternoon is not to ask whether the leader knows me or understands me or affirms me or lets me express myself or, you know, utilize my gifts. Even though I agree with you that a good shepherd does know the people and does give them opportunities to use their gifts... But, but the ultimate point is not to do that, not to ask whether the leader is speaking on things that are interesting or seemingly relevant for the moment, but to ask again if the leader is being led by Christ. If his words are agreeable to the word of God, in which case it becomes our duty, the author of Hebrews says, to not resist and to not grieve those leaders. And so what I see in, in these two verses, in 7 and 17, is, is a great stabilizing balance. I see a call to leaders to remember why they are to be there in the first place, and it is a call to the congregant members to r- realize what their actual obedience and submission in Christ do. They increase the joy of those who lead them rather than causing grief. And so I commend these verses to you. I want to challenge you all to ask the hard questions. I want to exhort you to pray for the leadership of this church. Pray for the glory of God, that it would be manifest in our relationships one to another in this body of Christ. And that you would commit to the higher way for the glory of God. And in return, I, and I believe I speak on behalf of of all the other leaders, commit to you to speak to you God's word and not my own. 
to keep my eyes fixed upon the Lord, to model joy, to fight for it every day of my life, and to seek your good and the glory of God. May the Lord bless us as we work through that balance together and fight for his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, you are a beautiful and glorious God who calls us to so many difficult things, especially to the dying to ourselves, to, to resistance to individualism, not resistance to authority, but ultimately to serve you with our whole heart, mind, and strength. Lord, I pray that you would help us in that regard and that you would bless us as we do serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.